What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. This program unique in all of uh, radio, all of Catholic radio, because it's a program for non-Catholics. If that's you, if you're a, non, uh, a non-Catholic, that is, and uh, you've got a question about the Catholic faith, we would love to get that question answered for you on today's program. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. If you're listening to us uh, outside of North America, you will want to dial the number 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer, Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener. Jeff Burson is on social media. If you want to ask a question uh, on YouTube or on Facebook, we're streaming there right now. Look for the comments box. That is where you want to put your question. Jeff will see that. He'll shoot it to us in Studio One, and off we go. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Andrews. Tom, how are you today? Very good. How are you, my friend? I'm doing decent. Thank you. Interesting question here. This is from Ken in Connecticut. Ken says, how is the Catholic priesthood God's gift and our responsibility? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Well, it's God's gift because the priesthood is the institution that brings us the sacraments. Yes. um, Especially the holy sacrifice of the Mass and Holy Communion, the real presence of Christ, which is the source and summit of the Church's faith and life. Uh, Without the priesthood, we have no Mass, we have no uh, absolution, uh, we have no ordination, we have no anointing of the sick. So we need the priesthood, yeah. um, and it's a great gift. Now, you know, some people object to the priesthood on the grounds that, well, you know, Catholics are really sort of bottlenecking the grace of God, that, you know, you've, you've restricted the flow of grace to this one individual. And that's—I understand that objection. It's not the way the Church sees it. Grace is something that God is always extending to us in a lot of different media, but the sacraments performed by a Catholic priest are the only media where we have a tangible sign— with a, a divine promise that grace will be on offer here, right? So you're like, you, God might extend grace to you in some other way, but you won't have that tangible, visible evidence mm-hmm. that it's right in front of you. Sure. Whereas, you know, you go to a priest for confession, for example, and he says, I absolve you of your sins. There's no guessing game. I'm absolved. I know that. There it is, right in front of me. It's a visible sign of this uh, invisible grace that's transmitted to me. So that's the benefit of the priesthood. Okay. Um, is it our responsibility? Well, in the sense that the church has to produce the priests, particularly through the domestic church, the family. I once gave a talk to a group of priests in the uh, Diocese of Memphis, and I urged the fathers, I said, preach Catholic doctrine. J- just preach the doctrine of the church. Good stuff, Catholic doctrine. Preach it. And there was a, a Nigerian priest who was there, and he stood up and he said, yes, yes, I always tell my people, you must have babies. Where do you think priests come from? They don't grow on <laughs> mango trees. <laughs> you know? you got to have babies. you got to raise them in the faith. 
you got to nurture a culture of vocations sure. in your church. Mm-hmm. If you don't have them, you won't have priests. There you go. And we hope that's uh, helpful for you, Ken, in Connecticut. Here's one now from, uh, looks like Tom, who says, Dr. Anders claimed that the Trinity was established as dogma by the magisterium in the Council of Nicaea. However, it is in fact defined in the Bible, and much more clearly than the so-called references to purgatory, the Catholics claim are also in the Bible. For example, at Jesus' baptism, we see all three persons of the Trinity. We also see Jesus praying often to the Father and then promising the Spirit to believers. So I think we need not depend on the magisterium or the church councils to realize the existence of the Trinity. So this seems to me a case of Catholics claiming something that is not quite accurate. Your comment, please. Yeah, I really appreciate the question. So obviously, as a Catholic Christian, I believe that the foundations of the doctrine of the Trinity are in sacred scripture, to be sure, to be sure. The problem is, sacred scripture is ambiguous. It's ambiguous. And for the first uh, four centuries of the Church, there, was, uh, there were divided opinions on the significance of the texts that you cite. There, you know, there, there was an underlying consensus on the part of the Orthodox that uh, Jesus is really God and God is really one. So that was the consensus, right? But the, the, the attempt to work out philosophically how that could be the case led to a difference of opinions that veered off into what the Church would later define as heresies. So, you know, take, for, take the heretic Arius, uh, excuse me, tongue-tied, Arius, for example, who Arius. prompted the Nicene Council. Arius would agree with everything you just said. Everything. He would agree that Christ is God, that you have all three persons at the baptism, that the Holy Spirit is divine. He would acknowledge all those things. But he would construe those facts in a very different way in a way that was ultimately defined as heretical. So for Arius, Christ's divinity was a kind of lesser status. He wasn't God with a capital G full stop. He was a God with a, small, with a, with a lowercase g. He was a creature uh, who had uh, been granted a kind of divine status. So he would agree with you based on the biblical data, but not on what, um, uh, what the Church calls the rule of faith, which is the sense that the Church has of the right way to interpret these things that's been handed down through sacred tradition. And it's the appeal to that tradition, the appeal to that census fidelium, uh, that, uh, and as well as the scriptural data that, uh, that uh, uh, Nicaea cites in, uh, in defining and articulating precisely what it is we mean when we say that Christ is God, the Spirit is God, the Father is God, and God is one. Very good. Thank you so much for that. Here's one from Ivy in Pennsylvania. It's a common belief in Protestant denominations that one must be confident or assured that they're saved. Merely hoping to be saved is not enough. Where did this idea come from, and what would be a good response for it? Yeah, absolutely. So so in Lutheranism, in, in Luther's theology, Luther's theology is very existentially oriented in the sense that it is oriented towards a psychological frame of mind, towards a kind of comfort and assurance in the forgiving grace of God. Now, Luther uh, thought that a person could lose their faith and be lost, uh, and so that there was a kind of ambiguity in there, even though he believed that, hey, you can rely totally on Christ and he'll save you and no works are necessary, but, you know, faith can be a fickle thing. On the Calvinist side of the equation, over in Geneva and France, Uh, They had a different view. They thought, well, to really have assurance, you need to know you can never be lost, that God has predestined you and you're never going to fall away. 
And so having that assurance turned into a sign, as they understood it, of election. You know you're saved because you know you're saved. Uh, Okay. Appreciate that, Ivy. Thanks so much for your email. Lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion. It's Call to Communion on this Thursday afternoon here on EWTN. Our phone number is 833 288-EWTN. 288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Andrews, maybe you'd like to explain to us uh, what is keeping you from becoming a Catholic. We'd love to hear about that. 833-288-3986. So we started out uh, just before the break with this question from Ivy in uh, Pennsylvania, and you answered the first part. Let's come back and get the second part. To restate, uh, she says, it's a common belief in Protestant denominations that one must be confident or assured that they are saved, merely hoping to be saved not enough. Where did this idea come from? You answered that. And what is a good response to it? Yeah, thanks. So, as I mentioned, it really comes out of Calvinism, this idea that I need, I ought to be completely certain that I cannot be lost, that my salvation is assured and written in heaven no matter what happens. And uh, I think there's a, there's a biblical response and there's a psychological response. Let me deal with the second one first. Within Calvinism, the big problem became, what are the criteria Granted that they believe there are some criteria by which a soul can know that he or she is elect and never going to be lost, but what are those criteria? The Reformed tradition, the Calvinist tradition, couldn't agree. Puritanism was an attempt to work out that problem. Uh, Some would take the position that all you have to do is just say, I'm saved, and you're saved. You just make an act of faith, you go forward at a Billy Graham crusade and raise your hand, whatever, and that seals the deal. That was a later development. The earlier view was that you might be saved by faith alone, but faith would necessarily produce a certain quality of life, a moral transformation, and you could infer your salvation from the quality of your moral life. Uh, but either way, whether you look for some interior religious emotion, some some going forth at the altar call, or some transformative experience, um, the, the criteria were ultimately uh, subjective and could be called into doubt. And, and all Calvinists admit that there's such a thing as spurious faith or false faith, someone that gives the appearance of faith and then walks away. So when you ask them, well, what about Joe over there? He said he was saved, and you know now he's an atheist. They would say, well, he never had real faith to begin with. So, the, so then the question becomes, well, which kind of faith do I have? Do I have the real faith that can't ever be lost, or do I have fake faith, spurious faith? And it led to the paradox of Calvinist friend of mine once said, the elect know for sure they're going to heaven, and I might be one of them, right? <laughs> so you, you, my, my pr- in practical terms, my experience is there tends to be kind of vacillation between states what I'll call presumption and despair. You know, the uh, like the little engine that could, he's marching up the hill going, I know I'm saved, I know I'm saved, I know I'm saved. Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not, <laughs> you know? And so there is that there is that dilemma. You can't really get away from that yeah. in my judgment. Um, but biblically, there's just no ground for this doctrine. It's not taught anywhere in sacred scripture, and Christ explicitly denies it. So in Matthew 25, he says, many people will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, we're saved. And he'll say, away from me, I never knew you, because you didn't live the right way. Yeah. So, I mean, the Bible does not teach this doctrine, but it's opposite. And it fully contemplates the possibility of real apostasy, by people who have the gift of the Spirit. So you just have to look at, say, the book of Galatians, book of Hebrews, book of Second Peter. They all deal with this problem of genuine believers who have an experience of God's grace who yet lose the faith and walk away. 
Ivy, a couple of great questions. Thank you so much for them. Uh, and why don't we get to the phones right now? What a great idea that is. Uh, if you're ready, let's do it at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Rachel to kick things off from West Virginia, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Rachel. What's on your mind today? Hello, gentlemen. Um, I have a question. My um, In our area, we do not have a large Catholic community, so I am joining a Baptist, mostly Baptist homeschooling group. Um, I'm a cradle Catholic. Um, I'm, I'm pretty well versed in our faith, mm-hmm. and I'm not versed in what Baptists believe, and I was wondering if Dr. Anders would please just talk a little bit about what I might encounter and if I if he thinks I need to read some books about Baptists before I fully commit to this group. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So uh, it depends on the kind of Baptists that you're dealing with, but a lot of Baptists, Southern Baptists, for example, tend to be more fundamentalist in their outlook, and that's probably what, if they're homeschoolers, my guess is that's what you're going to get. So if you use their curriculum or go to their curriculum meetings, uh, some of the pitfalls you wouldn't watch out for are, most importantly, a fundamentalist doctrine of the Bible. And so fundamentalists tend to see the Bible as an instruction manual that God gave us to, you know, for the conduct of our Christian life and faith, and they they read the texts of the Bible as if they were all written sort of on a level. They're all on the same level. There's no nuance or variation between, say, a text in the Old Testament and a text in the New. They're just to be to read in prima facie, straightforward Word of God, no nuance. And, uh, and that leads to, among other things, generally, a kind of anti-science attitude. So the way they handle science curriculum, you're much more likely, say, for example, to be handed textbooks that promote uh, young Earth creationism and, and tend to poo-poo the modern scientific establishment on things like biological evolution or geology. Um, and so they have a, a very different conception of the relationship of faith to reason. Uh, see, for a Catholic, reason can never contradict faith, and faith can never contradict reason. And if you find an apparent conflict, you go back to the drawing board and do your work over again until yeah. you find a way to harmonize them. That's not the way a lot of Baptists operate. If they find what seems to be a conflict between faith and reason, so much the worse for reason. They toss it out the window and just declare dogmatically, well, that's wrong, that scientist is wrong, you know, the Bible is the Word of God, and that's all, that's all she wrote. And that's a that's a kind of a naive approach that uh, that can set a child up for uh, grave uh, disillusionment later on down the road. Um, you are going to have uh, potentially a uh, an anti-Catholic bias in their presentation of history. Clearly, if they talk about the Reformation in the Middle Ages, uh, Catholics are not going to come out well in that discussion. Baptists are kind of founded on the idea that the Catholic Church is corrupt and the Reformation was a recovery of an ancient tradition that was allegedly lost. Uh, and they don't they don't think kindly about um, about Catholic faith or practices. So all of those would be things to look out for. The most subtle, but the one that's going to be most pervasive, is the way they understand the Bible. Now, by way of contrast, uh, Catholics believe the Bible is the Word of God, inspired and inerrant, and all it says. Uh, but that the Bible requires a certain amount of expertise and nuance to understand properly. And you can only read the Old Testament in light of the New, and uh, and that requires a sensitivity to multiple senses of sacred scripture, including allegory and anagogy, uh, which are definitely not uh, just reading the Bible off the face of it in the literal sense. And, of course, the way Catholics deal with science and reason and all that, very, very different. Of course, our account of human history is very different. And our account of, um, another thing would be our account of uh, political and moral social responsibility. 
So in some sort of far-right uh, Baptist circles, you're probably more likely to get a very politically partisan take on contemporary events and maybe an apocalyptic worldview that tends to think, you know, the environment be damned, uh, you know, uh, social concern be damned because Christ is going to come back any day. That, that, that kind of apocalyptic end-of-times worldview is very common in some uh, in some Protestant circles, and really undermines uh, the work for social justice that lies at the heart of the Catholic social vision. So, I mean, the, the problems, potential problems are mammoth, and you might not run into any of them, right? I'm just laying out what could be there yeah. and what to be on the lookout for. Um, now, you know, uh, should you join or not? Well, uh, it depends on the laws of your state. You know, some states require you to have a cover school in order to, in order to homeschool. Um, you can sometimes find a Catholic one that may be at some distance from you that doesn't require frequent contact, and they ah. could give you the cover that you need legally. And yeah, yeah. You just don't have to you know, maybe connect once every three months or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you feel the need to have a local community and you, you have to affiliate, you know, that would be different. What could you read? Uh, you know, I wouldn't read so much about Baptists. Uh, honestly, I would, I would the, the, the important thing you know, to detect the counterfeit is to be familiar with the, with the real McCoy, with the authentic article. So informing yourself about the Catholic understanding of these things, Catholic view of science, uh, uh, the, the Catholic view of Scripture, uh, the Catholic view of history, that's, that's where you want to spend your time. So you might t- take a look at uh, uh, books by Stacy Trosankos, who is a chemist-turned-Catholic apologist, a mm-hmm. practicing scientist who was an atheist, and she writes a good bit on the Catholic engagement with natural science, um, uh, particularly uh, uh, expounding the, the thought of Father Stanley Yockey. Um, he's also very helpful, his book, uh, The Savior of Science. Uh, you might look at Tom Woods, How the Catholic Church Built Western Civilization yeah. to get a, a, a far more uh, benevolent account of uh, Western history and the Catholic role therein. Uh, you might look at John Courtney Murray's uh, We Hold These Truths uh, for an account of a uh, Catholic view of political responsibility um, on, uh, on Scripture. You might look at Matthew Ramage's book, The Dark Passages of the Old Testament, uh, which is a really just penetrating account of Catholic hermeneutics. All these are texts for mom. They're not texts for the child, obviously. <laughs> They're just to educate you about the Catholic view of history, science, scripture, philosophy, and so forth to inform your your education. There's a lot of great writing on um, uh, a great book. I'm trying to think of the name of the author. I'll think of it in a minute. The title of the book is The Case for Catholic Education. Um, you know, get steep yourself in the Catholic vision of education. St. John Henry Cardinal Newman Um uh, his uh, idea of a Catholic university, it's kind of heady reading, um, but uh, but classic work in Catholic educational philosophy. We go on and on, but that's some good stuff to work on. I think some great resources for you there, Rachel. Thank you so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. We have one line open, 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Thursday afternoon here on EWTN. Hey, I want to tell you about something uh, just absolutely cool from, and especially during hot weather, yes. Ryan Topping. Oh, you thought of it. The case, well, I looked it up. The oh. case for Catholic education. <laughs> Very good. It is hot out there. We all know it. What a, what a great day to wear uh, shorts and a T-shirt. Have we got a T-shirt for you? How about this? A dogma T-shirt. Do you remember the phrase that was popping around uh, a couple of months ago? Uh, the dogma lives loudly within this person. Well, you can profess your faith faith without ever having to say a word with this great t-shirt on the front of it it says 
The Dogma Lives Loudly Within Me, very timely. It's available in two colors, Heather Charcoal or Heather Blue. It is sure to start conversations and opportunities to evangelize, which is what we're supposed to be about. Size options are uh, small to 2X. Visit EWTN's religiouscatalog.com to order EWTNRC.com. And uh, good news for you now, the price has been reduced. Started out at $19.95 right now, today. Get it for $12.99 while supplies last. Again, EWTNRC.com. Hey, Derek is watching us in Nigeria today on YouTube. Derek says, which exact council decided on the Old Testament and which council decided on the New Testament? Thanks, Derek in Nigeria. Thank you. So so the, the question of the canon was discussed at a number of, of councils and synods in church history, but the, the, the most definitive and authoritative is the Council of Trent in the 16th century because the Reformers had objected to the deuterocanonical text of the Old Testament, so Trent put the nail in that coffin. But you can find discussions of, of, uh, of the canon in the councils of Carthage, uh, Hippo, and Rome in the mm. 4th century as well. Okay, very good. And uh, Derek, thanks for checking us out in Nigeria on YouTube. Let's go now to Jerry in Independence, Ohio, listing on AM 1260, The Rock. Hey, Jerry, what's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, hey there, Dr. Anders. Thanks for taking my call here. Um, I wanted to know if you had ever studied or done any research on the Shroud of Turin and if you believe that it's actually the cloth that covered Christ. Okay, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So I am familiar with the Shroud of Turin. I, my, my own personal engagement with the data on that hasn't extended much beyond listening to what Father Spitzer has to say on the topic, <laughs> honestly. Uh-huh. And, uh, and it's... Uh, for me personally, I mean, this is a—it's a big deal at EWTN. Folks are very animated about it. Of course, we have images of the shroud at Mother, at Mother Angelica's place in Hansville, and yes. so there's a lot of devotion to it around here, and I profoundly respect that. It's—it's it's not the kind of thing that ever animated my spirituality. Um, I was always what made me Catholic. What was most persuasive to me were the perennial truths of the Catholic faith that connected uh, faith to the life of reason. And so the witness of the fathers and St. Augustine and the, the great coherence of the faith with Neoplatonic philosophy and the moral life, the, these were always the things that, that really moved me. And so um, particular historical marvels, be they you know relics, shrouds, uh, miraculous hosts, that sort of thing, which is very important to many people, and I appreciate and support that, never was the thing that got me off the ground to be Catholic. I mean, I became Catholic because of the witness of history, uh, the, the witness of sacred scripture, and the witness of the fathers. And uh, and I sort of take the rest of that package in stride. It's, it, that's sort of part of the package, right? But it's um, but uh, but I never, when I'm doing my own research and study, I'm, I'm much more likely to spend my time in philosophy, theology, and history. Very good. Uh, Jerry, thank you so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. I mentioned a few moments ago that we had... Uh, you know, five lines full, one line open. Well, a couple of callers have dropped off for whatever reason. Sometimes the call drops. Sometimes uh, maybe they got called away from the phone. Guess what? Their loss, your gain. You can get in right now by calling 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We have several lines open. This will be a fantastic time for you to call 833 288 
EWTN. Uh, I'm going to pose a question here for David. He can be thinking about this, perhaps researching a little bit during the break. This is from Sylvie, watching us today on YouTube. Sylvie says, can Dr. Andrews please explain why the example often given of water taking on other forms such as ice or steam, why that is not an accurate metaphor for the Trinity. Why don't you think about yes, that? Yes, I can answer that, I and I will get you, to it after the break. I knew you could do it. You've never let me down. So uh, listen for David answers on that, and be sure to give us a call if you have a question. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this rather warm Thursday afternoon here on EWTN. Stay with us. Hey, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. So before the break, uh, we asked the question from Sylvie watching on YouTube. Can Dr. Andrews please explain why the example often given of water taking on other forms such as ice or steam is not an accurate metaphor for the Trinity? Yeah, because what that metaphor actually teaches is the heresy of Sabellianism or modalism. Uh, there was a second-century theologian named Sibelius who said that's exactly how the Trinity functions, that Father, Son, and Spirit are names for different modes that the one God takes. And that was ruled heretical because it denies the distinction of the persons. They're not, they're not, there's not a, there aren't distinct persons in that analogy. They're distinct modes. Mm. And the doctrine of the Trinity specifically teaches that, uh, that the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son— uh, in person. They're one essence, but they dis- they have a distinct relation of person to person. And that's essential to the dogma of the Trinity, and Sabellianism and the steam am- analogy misses that. The, a better analogy, the best analogy for the Trinity that exists, in my opinion, is one that was given to us by St. Aquinas, excuse me, uh, St. Augustine, but echoed by St. Thomas Aquinas. Okay. Augustine said, consider an intellect, and Augustine understands the intellect to be an immaterial thing, uh, consider an intellect thinking itself. So, uh, you know, an intellect is not a composite thing. Right. It is a, if it's immaterial, it's not made of parts. Um, and so you have the subject, who is the intellect, doing the thinking. Mm-hmm. You have the object thought, which is itself, it's conceiving of itself. Yeah. And you have the act of thinking. You have the relation of the thinker to the thought. And so you have a distinction of relation, but not of essence. Now, that's Mm. kind of subtle, but it's the best analogy for the Trinity that exists, because what we have is a distinction of relation, but not of essence. Hope that's helpful for you, Sylvie. Thanks so much for watching us today on YouTube. Call to communion here on EWTN. We're going to Jim in Akron now, listening on the great Living Bread Radio. Jim, what's on your mind today, sir? 10.60 10.60 a.m. Jim, are you there? Hi, Jim. Uh, Jim in Akron, are you with us? I'll tell you what, let's let's put Jim on hold. Jim, we're going to come back and uh, get your call. First, let's go to Dorothy in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, and uh, Dorothy's listening on Divine Mercy Radio. Hello, Dorothy, what's on your mind today? Hi, I don't even know if you can help me. But um, I've been with my husband, who's from Ghana, West Africa, since 1979. 
And he has, in the last probably over 10 years, has slowly drifted completely away from me, left the bedroom, left the church. He used to be uh, a Eucharistic minister when we lived in Albany, New York, and he has just um, accused me of many, many things that I've never done, including infidelity and and having sex with this one and that one and flirting and this and that. And I try desperately to um, gently bring him back to the church and such, and he decided to retire, didn't tell me anything, left for Ghana in 2021, and apparently rendezvoused with a young woman there, like probably in her 20s, and when he came back, he's got heart disease and diabetes and hypertension, and I took him to New York City, um, Mount Sinai Hospital, where he needed to have a heart procedure done. He had it done, and then I had an incidental finding on his phone, looking for my phone, of this naked girl showing him a little video of herself, and I was in pure shock. Um, granted, he, all my children, I had seven children with him, and two of them um, died in a car accident 28 years ago. They were eight and ten, a boy and a girl, Joey and Suzanne. I don't know what to do with my life. Dorothy, I am so, so, so sorry. I am so sorry. You have really, really, really suffered. And anything I say to you risks uh, seem, seeming trite or like a platitude, and that is the last thing in the world I want to give you. The most important thing that I could give you would be attention, time, presence, charity. Um, and you need that even more than you need answers. You need people around you who will love you and help you and support you and be with you. And what has been an unbelievably trying, sounds like, life, and uh, and my heart goes out to you. I really am sorry. And I, I have some sympathy. I have not experienced what you've experienced, but I have been through other tragedies in my life that have pushed me absolutely to the limit, tested my faith, tested my... Uh, sense of what I'm doing with my life, and is there any meaning in anything that I do? I, I'm, I'm familiar with what that feels like, and it is absolutely devastating. And uh, I, the the best description, the best word that I can come up with for what you're experiencing, to me, it seems like, is mourning. I mean, you are mourning as if someone died. Now, you lost your children, which is unbelievable, but you've you've lost your husband, it would seem. And uh, and the the this the palpable sense of loss is uh, tantamount, I think, to death. It's a kind of mourning. And uh, in terms of what you do with your life, uh, you know, from what you've told me, you, you still have five children. You, you didn't say anything about them. You may have grandchildren. Um, you you have people in your life. Uh, your life has meaning. Your life has meaning. It may not feel like it has meaning, but it has meaning. It's important to the people around you. It's important to God. It's important to us. And um, and so, you know, you, it's the hardest thing in the world to do. And I mean, I'm I'm not going to lie, but to put one foot in front of the other, and to and to keep on keeping on, for the sake of all the people that are in your life that have not left you, for the sake of those who have left you. You know, my, my dad died of Lou Gehrig's disease, horrible disease, totally paralyzed him, uh, uh, couldn't move his little finger. He could still speak amazingly, but he couldn't do anything else. 
And, uh, and as he got closer and closer to death, I asked him one day, I said, Dad, you know, you're going to die. How do you feel about that? And he said, well, as long as I can be any good to my family, I want to stick around. As a man who couldn't lift his own finger. Yeah. But he knew that by his, just by his being mm-hmm. that he could be a presence in the life of people who he cared about. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and there are times when we, we have to be there for other people when they're not there for us, when we feel nothing coming back, um, uh, and that's and we have to cling to that as the tiniest little shred and scintilla of meaning that we can squeeze out of an otherwise terribly painful situation. And I, I don't want to sound like this is a platitude, but it does get better. Yeah. And that's where we have to leave it, Dorothy. Uh, please know that you are in our prayers. Thank you so much for your call. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Susan now in Falls Church, Virginia, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio. Susan, what's on your mind today? Hi. Um, yes, I uh, am in a dialogue with my sister who is, we were all raised Catholic. She's now fundamentalist. And uh, it was recently the anniversary, 13th anniversary of the passing away of her only son and firstborn through a tragic accident. So she brought up that it was the anniversary, it's his birthday and his um, date of his death are close close on the calendar. And I just responded that I would, I would be praying for him. And I got back a response of, oh dear. And, you know, kind of very, he's very upset and telling me, you know, that's, she doesn't believe in that, it's not necessary. So I know that you're a convert, Dr. Anderson. I was wondering if you had any thoughts of that, because I just don't even understand not wanting to pray for your loved ones just because they're not on this. Yeah, planet. sure. Thanks. I, I do. I do have some understanding of of your sister's position. Most people in her camp would take the view that the son is in heaven, and so praying for him to get to heaven, which is what prayers for the dead are. Uh, is, uh, you know, would suggest that he, first of all, that he's not there, and the way she copes with his loss is her conviction that he's there, right? Yeah. That's a big part of the Protestant way of grieving. They, they just canonize everybody at the moment of their death and go, well, we know he's in heaven, so it's a better place, and we move on. And, uh, and so that's, that, that's a big thing. There's an emotional component to it. This is where my hope is. This is where my assurance is. It's in this conviction that I have that he's saved and I don't have to do anything else about it. So that, that definitely plays into it. Um, but there's a whole worldview. There's a whole way of reading the Bible and the scriptures and the Christian faith uh, constructed around the idea that you're praying for him as a form of superstition. And so she would see not only would this suggests that, well, her son not being in heaven, that'd be a big problem for her. But it also suggests that from her point of view, her sister is locked into this archaic and superstitious religion that, you know, will be her undoing. So it's a, it's not a charitable read on the Catholic faith. Most fundamentalists view Catholicism really as the enemy and a really, 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 really bad idea. Uh, and so that's not how she wants to engage you. She wants to engage you on religion, probably in order to <clears throat> proselytize you mm. and make you like her. She doesn't want to engage you 
you know, on some sort of even, even playing field where you both have something to offer and contribute. It's a, it's a conquistorial sort of attitude towards Catholicism. Yeah, Catholics yeah. are benighted idiots who are good for nothing except to proselytize. Wow. Susan, thank you so much for your call. Hope that's helpful for you. It is called a communion here on EWTN on this Thursday afternoon. You know what comes after Thursday afternoon? Thursday evening. You know what happens on Thursday evening? The World Over with Raymond Arroyo. Always a fascinating program. Week after week, Raymond delivers the goods. Check it out tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN radio and television. Here's an email from Tom in Oklahoma, who normally listens to us on Oklahoma Catholic Radio. Hello, Tom and Dr. Anders. I am a Protestant, and I've heard you say on previous shows that Protestants have only two sacraments, while Catholics have seven. Well, as former Protestants yourselves, which Catholic sacrament that you didn't have before has made the most significant difference in your spiritual life as a Catholic, and why? I'm trying to discern what I'm missing out on as a non-Catholic Christian in terms of the sacraments. Thanks, Tom in Oklahoma. Yeah, thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. Different Catholics will answer this question different ways. I will speak out of my own experience. When I was a Protestant, I attended Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, and there was in uh, Blanchard Hall, I believe, a chapel uh, dedicated to prayer. It was a prayer chapel, uh-huh. and the lights were kind of kept dim, and people could go in there and sit in pews, and there was a table at the front that they called an altar, um, and sticky notes, little post-it notes. And you could go forward in the room and you could write out a prayer request, prayer intention on this sticky note and leave it on the altar. And then other people would come in and they would take up your intention. They'd pray for you, which was delightful. And I still think that's a good thing. And I hope that Wheaton still has the prayer chapel and the sticky notes. And uh, you could also just pray and meditate and read scripture if you wanted to. You didn't have to engage the whole sticky note regime. But occasionally I I would go in there actually frequently to pray. But sometimes I would go up and read the sticky notes and, uh, and pray. It was almost always anonymous pray for my uh, anonymous uh, fellow students and their needs. And I, I discerned a trend that, you know, a lot of them would be prayers for, you know, a sick loved one or something of that sort. But oftentimes they would take the character of a confession of sin or moral weakness. I'm really struggling with this thing. Pray with, for me. I'm, I'm having a temptation in this area of my life. Please pray for me. And, and it wasn't until I became Catholic that I really fully appreciated what was being asked for. Um, There was a desire for some sense that God is here to help me with this problem, that I can overcome this, that, um, you know, that I could have some some word of assurance uh, from the beyond, and how much I would myself have liked in moments of doubt and self-doubt to uh, have had a voice speak from heaven to say, David, it's all good. I've got this. You're forgiven. I'm with you. We're going to get through it. And of course, I I didn't have that. Uh, When I became Catholic, the first time I went to the confessional, and I knew the theology of the church. I'd I'd studied the faith before I became Catholic, and and, uh, you know, John chapter 20, Christ breathes on the apostles, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, whose sins you retain are retained. I, uh, I went to the confessional, I made my con- first confession, and the priest said, God, the Father of mercies, sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins. And I knew he was talking about John 20. Through the ministry of the church, because I knew it was the church that administers this sacrament, 
May God grant you pardon and peace, and I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in a flash, I saw that I had something as a Catholic that I'd never had as a Protestant, and that was, wasn't the question of assurance, because Protestants claim to have assurance. It was an objective basis for my assurance. And I don't mean something objective like the Word of Scripture, which is written generally. It's not written specifically to me, regardless of how much I might feel it's mine. You know, Paul writes to the Church of Galatia, to the Church of Corinth, not to David Anders. Right, right. But this was a word addressed to me as a specific individual by someone that I had come to believe was authorized directly by God to act as his emissary and empowered to do so with the Holy Spirit to grant absolution in God's name. And so there was an objectivity, a facticity to this, a tangibility to this, to this word of absolution that I never had as a Protestant, regardless of all of the exhortations to assurance that I'd ever, that I'd ever heard. That was, that was amazing. That was amazing. Um, now, most Catholics, I think, will tell you that uh, the chief sacrament in their life uh, is the sacrament of Holy Communion and the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, which I profoundly appreciate. But for me personally, there was something about the confessional that just blew my socks off. And I've often said if I had only one sacrament as a Catholic, if it were the sacrament of confession, it would be enough for me. It would be enough for me. Now, you asked me the benefit of the sacraments. The sacraments are not the totality of the Catholic faith. You didn't ask, you know, what benefits do I derive by being Catholic? And if you asked that question, I could go on for the whole show. Yeah. Well, we do thank you, Tom, in Oklahoma. First of all, thanks for listening on Oklahoma Catholic Radio. And today, thank you for your excellent question. Do appreciate hearing from you today. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Hank in Winnexa, Kansas, listening today on YouTube. Hello, Hank. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi there, guys. Uh, regarding the Eucharist, could you explain a little bit about how the disposition of the recipient affects the efficacy of the sacrament? Yep. Maybe suggest some resources to learn more? There? Sure, absolutely. So uh, if I go to the sacrament in the state of mortal sin then not only do I not benefit myself, but I actually heap condemnation on my head and harden my heart. This is what Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians. And think about it, right? So the Eucharist is the sacrifice of the Church. It's the sacrifice that we offer the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus to God the Father in reparation for the sins of the world. And unlike the Old Testament sacrifices that required ritual purity, the New Testament sacrifice requires interior purity. I mean, Christ makes that plain, that it's not tithing, mint, dill, or cumin. It's love, justice, and mercy that make your sacrifice acceptable. You know, sacrifice and offering you do not desire, O Lord, but a, but a contrite heart you will not despise. It's that interior aspect, that interior purification that's necessary. If we don't do that, we don't offer the sacrifice rightly. We don't offer it in a way that's pleasing to God. Uh, and if I think I do, if I go to the sacrament of mortal sin with impunity— well, what happens is that I, I absolutely sear my conscience. So let's say I'm flagrantly committing adultery, for example, and I go forward with a, in, in utter disregard of the holiness of the sacrament, of the, of the holiness of the, uh, of the offering, and I habitually receive communion in the state of adultery. That's not going to help me overcome my adultery. That's, gonna, that's going to sear my conscience to the severity of what I'm doing. But if I'm conscious that I cannot ever go to the sacrament in the state of mortal sin, oh my gosh, I've been up to my eyeballs in mortal sin. 
I better get to the confessional. Right? Then that my whole disposition, not just towards the Eucharist, but towards my whole moral life changes. And the sacrament becomes an occasion for me to change my entire life. Not not just in this moment of reception, mm-hmm. but my whole orientation towards the world and towards sin and towards the church and the Eucharist and my body and my neighbor changes when I have this disposition that I will not go in the state of mortal sin. Now, what if I go and I'm not in mortal sin, but I'm kind of so-so. I'm sort of lukewarm. I'm not totally engaged. Um, and uh, engagement's the wrong word. I, my, my charity is diminished. So that I don't, I don't, I lack that burning desire to grow in holiness and to mm-hmm. do good to my neighbor. Mm-hmm. Well, I might derive some benefit from the sacrament, but it won't be the same benefit that I go that I receive if I go with that burning charity in my heart. And I, I want to emphasize that the charity here is not a kind of frenetic excitement about the liturgical action, and it's quite possible for people to become very exercised about the the ritual engagement in the liturgy and to confuse that with piety. That's something that Francis de Sales assails in his Introduction to the Devout Life, uh, chapter 1. He, he makes it very plain that a kind of a, sort of an emotional excitement around the ritual actions of Catholic life is not the same thing as a genuine love of God and neighbor. Um, and, uh, you know, people, for example, get all worked up about, you know, the, the proper form of the rite or, you know, this version of the rite or that version or do I receive communion on my hand or on my tongue or this kind of music or that kind of music. To my way of looking at it, that's, that's another species of tithing meant dill and cumin and neglecting the weightier matters of the law, which is love and justice and mercy. That, yeah. that genuine desire to grow in holiness and charity is like this passionate desire to be united to God in my character and to do good to my neighbor, uh, though, it, though it hurt me. Right, that kind of desire to grow in holiness obviously is going to bear more fruit in the reception of the sacrament. Uh, what should you read on this topic? Well, I mentioned one resource, which was Francis de Sales, um, uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas, in the uh, the second part of the uh, uh, second section of the um, sum- of the third part of the Summa, where he talks about the sacraments. His discussion of Holy Communion is outstanding. Um, the uh, Alphonsus Liguri, uh, another great uh, classic. Uh, moral theologian and uh, and devotionalist and doctor of the church. Uh, all these are wonderful resources. There you go. And uh, thank you so much. You know for what? I'll yeah. bet you anything. I don't have her bibliography at the tip of my fingertips, but I'll bet you anything there's a book by Mother Angelica on this uh, someplace. I bet there is. I bet there is. Uh, you gotta also check out our wonderful weekend program, Mother Angelica Answering the Call. There you go. That's a good one, too. Uh, Hank, thanks so much for your call. Here's a thoughtful letter from Margaret in uh, Vienna, Virginia. Dr. Anders, a big reason why I am not Catholic is that I oppose your church's sexism. I was very dissatisfied with an answer you gave recently to the question, how is it not sexist that the Catholic Church won't ordain women? Your answer went something like this. A priest's role to the congregation is like that of a father or a husband to a wife or family. But that assumes that husbands and wives must have different roles. I don't agree with that. I think we're all just people and that to assign roles or characteristics based on sex is wrong, both in the sense of being inaccurate as well as in the sense of promoting injustice. You also pointed out that men can't have babies. Well, that's true, but pregnancy, birth, and breastfeeding don't occupy a woman's entire life. And even while they are occurring, they are not all-consuming in the sense of excluding all other activities or thoughts. 
Many women never do any of these things, and many men are very involved in child care and nurturing. That's from Margaret. Yeah, thanks, Margaret. I agree with just about everything you just said. All right, I agree with just about everything you just said, except one thing. When you said that you think it's wrong to assign roles, there's one role that I think has to be assigned to men and has to be assigned to women and can't be reversed, and that is the, the, the role of being mother or father. I, I, it is impossible, it is metaphysically impossible for me to take on the role of being a mother. I can, I can do some motherly things, yes. but I fundamentally cannot be a mother any more than my wife can be a father. And it is in that respect only that we, that we distinguish the unique character of the priesthood in the, uh, in the place of the church. And it is precisely in, in her maternal fecundity that um, uh, that women, that the Blessed Virgin Mary, for example, stands at the top of the hierarchy of saints, if you will, that the, her, her capacity to give birth to the God-man and through him to be the mother of all those that believe in Christ um, is inseparable from her fecundity, from her fertility. Now, I agree with you that that, that doesn't, that doesn't re- exhaust the personality of Mary any more than fertility exhausts the personality of a man. Um, but, there, but there are things that are distinct to men and women that, cannot, that are not interchangeable, and those, those differences matter symbolically in uh, the assigning of roles within the church. But in terms of the, the, the sort of hierarchy of values, we would never say that women are less valuable or men more valuable or vice versa in the yeah. church. And, and honestly, um, in, in specific instances— women might be tremendously more valuable right in 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 specific concrete circumstances and uh, and their contributions must justly be acknowledged and the fact that they haven't always been is a grave injustice mm. i really recommend you take a look at john paul ii's encyclical on this topic on the dignity of women also a book by a catholic feminist uh, erica bacciocci uh, women sex in the church have you been practicing that, Bacciochi? You you hit you nailed it. Um, well, well, yeah, I've, I've given her out several times. <laughs> very good. Well, uh, Margaret, thank you so much uh, for your very thoughtful letter, and we hope that is helpful for you. Hey, Dr. David Anders, a fast-moving show. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, and uh, thank you for listening. We do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN. If you're a first-time listener. Please don't be a last-time listener. We're here for you Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast and uh, 11 p.m. Eastern for the uh, Encore, which is, uh, of course, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. You can also check out our podcast anytime by going to EWTNradio.net, EWTNradio.net. Look for that button on the right side of the screen that says Podcasts, and then you'll see Call to Communion and all of our other great podcasts on Podcast Central. On behalf of our great team, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thanks for joining us. Hope that you're here with us tomorrow for the Friday edition of Call to Communion. Until then, have a wonderful evening. Stay hydrated. We'll see you tomorrow. God bless.